This episode of Civic Cocktail is supported by Comcast. What can Seattle do to solve our public safety problems? I think that we need to really empower and engage community to be part of the solution and um, to, to police ourselves, really. How can community leaders and the police help? When you run an organization, you really want to make sure that you're not doing 100 different things, that you're doing just a couple different things, and that's really trying to get back to the basics of policing. On this month's Civic Cocktail, we explore what's getting better and what still needs to be done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Civic Cocktail. I'm your host, Monica Guzman. What does it mean today to be safe in Seattle, to be shielded from danger or threat, so you can live your life fully, without fear, no matter where or who you are? It's a big question, as our city wrestles with rising crime, an overwhelmed police department, a strained legal system, and neighbors who are fed up and frustrated by everything from distrust around racial disparities to what feels like inaction bordering on neglect. All with this nagging sense after the reckonings of the last few years that we're still not seeing the bigger picture. So we will attempt to sketch a broader outline here tonight. We'll begin by hearing from three local leaders whose community advocacy gives them each a critical lens on what a truly public safety is all about. And then we'll talk to the man in charge of the most powerful local institution officially charged with supporting safety in our city, Seattle Police Interim Chief Adrian Diaz. With us to help draw out what it takes to be safe and sound in Seattle are my first three guests. Please join me in welcoming Sean Good, Executive Director of Choose 180, a nonprofit that offers young people restorative alternatives to traditional prosecution. Quinn Pham, Executive Director of Friends of Little Saigon, a group building the vibrancy and vitality of that neighborhood. And Esther Lucero, President and CEO of the Seattle Indian Health Board, a community center that offers cultural health care and human services. Thank you all for your work, and thank you for joining us tonight. Let's hear it for our guests. So this is a conversation about safety. And before we can get too far into it, we want to understand what, from your perspective, safety even means. So let's start with you, Quinn. When you think about safety in your community, in your life, in your work, what does it come down to? For me personally, um, and my community that I represent is the, are the folks in Little Saigon. Um, it's the Vietnamese immigrant and refugee um, families, seniors, um, and small businesses. And so safety for me uh, is being able to just walk outside, greet your neighbors without the feeling that you're going to be harmed physically or even mentally, especially in our current society. Um, for our business owners, it's really um, at the end of the day, closing up their storefronts and not feeling like they're going to come the next day with a smashed window. Um, and also to the customers, um, being safe, feeling safe when you're parked in any place in the neighborhood. Um, so it's really basic needs. Um, but 
yeah, it's um, it's a feeling that we all have the right to feel, and mm -hmm. it's just being uh, challenged every day. So um, it becomes harder and harder to define what real safety means for our community. Mm -hmm. So Sean, I know pub safety, public safety touches on a lot of things. What's, what's one key concern where you begin to unpack what it means for you and your community? Yeah. Well, the other night I fell asleep um, and I forgot to lock my door. And I woke up in the morning and I didn't really think like, oh my goodness, I forgot to lock my door, something could have happened to me. Because my wife and I were homeowners and we live in a neighborhood um, you know, my son's in college. We both have jobs, gainfully employed. And that experience is dynamically different than what it was in my childhood when I'd run from the end of the block into my apartment complex, um, right into my home, my apartment home. Or when I was sleeping in my car outside the Home Depot before I'd go into my shift over there off of Lander. Um, safety is having the experience of your material needs met and a community around you that knows you, that understands you, and that sees you for who you fully are in your humanity. Um, safety is being able to walk in a world that embraces your full humanity and, and doesn't consider you less than fully human like my ancestors were. Safety is um, living in a community that's absent of a promotion of racism and racist ideas, where folks can choose to live in neighborhoods because they're equally affordable that the material conditions of neighborhoods can change without pushing people out of them. Um, those are all things that contribute to safety. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I have a privilege to experience that at this point in some regard, but it's also really confined to where I am at that given moment. Mm -hmm. Because last week on Sunday, I was going out for a run and I got pulled over um, for having a, a headlight out on Rainier. And in that moment, I absolutely did not feel safe. Um, because of all the other variables that are present that would then make me feel as though my life were in danger. Thank you. So Esther, you've heard a couple of you know, definitions of, of safety, um, being able to walk out in your neighborhood without fearing uh, for something, but also being seen for who you fully are and having a community support you and the city support you in a lifestyle that you can access. What, what does safety mean to you? Tell us what it looks like from your vantage point in your community. Yeah. I think from an organizational perspective, um, I can really um, agree with when we, we share a neighborhood really in the international district. And then of course, what I love about Sean is he always brings you know historical context into perspective. I'm going to tell you public safety or just safety generally for me means that you know one in three of our native women will not be raped. Mm. How about that? Mm -hmm. How about we need to walk on this land like we're guests on this planet, right? Mm -hmm and understand that indigenous people have a right to this land and that we have experienced historical atrocities that have really caused ailments in our community. And we shouldn't be subject to racism for those or discrimination for those things, mm -hmm. right? We should be subject to honor and respect and community commitment to supporting our people. You know, I think about the ways that we will move through the world together, standing shoulder to shoulder as people of color and what that looks like. Um, being able to uh, be in a communal environment without folks taking that as a threat. Mm -hmm. Those things are public safety, having access to resources and services um, that allow us to live healthier, happier lives. Those things are safety. Um, 
So I think, you know, that's as an individual. It's also, I am one of those businesses, you know, and uh, being able to call on support and help for protection is really key and not experience fear when that phone calls me. Now, the, the story around public safety in the headlines is typically a story about where safety meets the law. It's a story about crime. And lately, it hasn't been a great one. Property crime on the rise, violent crime surged 20% from 2020 to 2021, and parts of downtown and Little Saigon are being called hotspots of criminal activity. Where is the focus on crime helpful in working toward a safer Seattle, do you think? And what does it tend to miss? And I'll start with you, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what, what happens is when we focus on crime, uh, we, we don't do it unilaterally. We focus on crime that occurs in particular areas that have where we can emphasize folks who we believe are most likely to commit those particular behaviors. We don't focus on um, illicit drug use in suburban neighborhoods. Um, we focus on property damage in the downtown corridor. I mean, both of which are crimes, um, but where we place the emphasis is mm. where I think some of the low-hanging fruit is and objectively also where the greatest support is needed. I, I think what's not helpful is when we transition um, from talking about crime to making someone criminal. Um, like, yeah. a person can do something that's been criminalized, but that doesn't make them a criminal. They're still a human being. They're still like fully present to that humanity. And our current system doesn't help those who have caused harm to engage in a healing journey, nor does it help those who have been harmed to begin to heal either. When a business owner gets their door smashed in, a friend of mine um, has, a, has a business and they, a candle shop, and their business got broken into. Um, they didn't stop feeling insecure um, when the police showed up and, and took a report, like that lingers and there's not support to heal from that. Mm -hmm. And what we know to be true is that if people don't heal, then they stay hurt and hurt people are very likely mm -hmm. at some point of time to engage in a cycle of hurting others. Mm -hmm. And until we begin to address public safety in a manner that quickly engages people who have been harmed and those who have been accused of causing harm in a journey towards healing, we're going to continue to talk about how many repeat offenders there are. And, and, the city, the, and the city attorney's office is going to continue to look for ways to incarcerate people for longer periods of time who continue to show up on the heat maps and these hot spots. Because we've yet to embrace the fact that we cannot police our way out of the social pandemic that we've placed ourselves in the midst of. You can't divest from a population of people. You can't place people in the midst of a pandemic and have them experience one of the greatest mental health crises of, of our country's existence, leave folks unhoused, unsheltered, absent of support and the necessary resources to thrive, and then suggest that somehow they're going to get on and carry on and, and, and become better after they spend time in a county lockup where people are committing suicide at incredible rates. Like, that actually doesn't honor the integrity of anyone. Those who have been impacted are those who have been accused of causing impact. So that's what we're missing, it sounds like you're saying, is the focus on crime misses the person that's been branded the criminal right. that could have a different, <laughs> different journey well, than it, they tend to Absolutely, have. we believe that young people in particular are possibilities to be developed and not problems to be solved. Mm -hmm. And that conviction has led to some terrific outcomes when we support them at, through offering them community instead of criminal convictions. It's because we're centering their humanity and developing them on a continuum that allows them to see themselves as possible instead of problematic. So uh, Quinn, I'd like to bring you into this. Uh, where, 
where is the focus on crime? I mean, we, you know, we have statistics so that we can track what's happening with our city, right? We, we have laws so that, so that we can have agreements, a certain kind of contract about how we could attempt to ensure safety. Uh, so where is that helpful and where do you think it misses the mark? Um, it's so hard to separate crime and some of the social problems that we're dealing with and having, so I'm gonna put a cultural lens on top of that. I think um, especially in the Little Saigon International District, um, our community has a hard time separating all of the issues across because there has been no opportunity to learn and understand. Um, we've always been in this very reactionary phase um, and we can't seem to get out of it. And reacting I, to what? Reacting to just everything that's happening street level. Um, so take us there. So just the sheer number of unhoused folks, I think just the physical visibility and uh, media plays a lot into this, um, telling this different narrative that may be not something we're seeing on a regular basis, but creates a perception that is so unsafe in our neighborhood that it's hard to avoid. And um, for especially commercial districts, um, we're attracting people from outside of the region. Um, and to have news of Little Saigon on front pages of our local papers only talking about safety, mm. of course our businesses and our visitors are gonna have this very narrow perception of what that is. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes really hard to break apart the humanity and um, the crime and everything that's going on um, and explain that in a culturally sensitive and linguistic way that people can understand across these very diverse communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, something as simple as um, we, that our neighborhood has been asking for is uh, very culturally specific services for unhoused folks. And even getting to that point has been so challenging. Mm -hmm. um, there are um, outreach, so many outreach programs, but all of them lack language and cultural competency to get the real needs addressed in our community, so. Esther, what would you, what would you add to this conversation about what's helpful about the, when, the way we tend to tell this story and track and what we track and, and what's, wh what do we need to improve about it? I think we have a very difficult time um, deconstructing the intersection between homelessness, you know, mental health stability, substance use disorder, um, and criminal activity. I think we all, we think of them as synonymous and it's, that's problematic. Mm -hmm. I'll have to tell you, running a community health center in the, in the International District, and we have a very heavily publicized encampment near our building. Um, and I think about like the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic and lack of responsiveness from um, police, especially when everything became so heavily politicized. And I remember as an organization, we actually, begin to employ armed security guards 24 hours a day. Mm. And it wasn't so When was that roughly? That know? was right during the, pandemic, during the pandemic, so about two years ago. Yeah. I mean, put it in perspective, it, we've, it's cost us about $2.5 million um, to improve safety around our area. Now, mm. I wanna be clear about something. This wasn't just about our building. This wasn't about the relatives that we serve. We call our patients our relatives. It wasn't just about our staff. But I have to tell you, those unhoused folks in that encampment were so grateful that we did that mm -hmm. because they felt like they were being 
targeted and exploited by some of, you know, human trafficking, drug trafficking, like those types of things that we see that occur. And all the, we exist to serve our relatives who are in their most, you know, desperate place. And it just broke our hearts just to see folks, you know, not only to be um, without resources, but also just subject to just fear. Mm. And I'll tell you, if we're calling and there isn't a response, what happens when they're calling? Certainly no response. Mm. And you cannot tell me that it's appropriate when we're supposed to be dependent upon our public safety entities um, to care for us, mm. you know, to, to redirect that to small businesses or community health centers like us. Mm. That is problematic. So here's a, a question from our audience yeah. um, that I'm very curious to hear your response. Uh, the audience member says, do you think public safety only became an issue when people in Fremont and Queen Anne and other more well-to-do neighborhoods started to feel unsafe? So this is, this is, this is a critical question. This is, this is a question that gets to something, something tender, something big. Who wants to take it? Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Paper, rock, and scissors. No. <laughs> I mean, like, I love the Fremont market on Sundays. Um, <laughs> You know, and walking by Theo's chocolates, I'm a little disappointed that I can't get samples like I used to because we're in this pandemic world, right? <laughs> um, and, I, and I think it's really challenging for folks when um, suffering becomes visible um, and they're not used to the visible manifestation of suffering being mm -hmm. in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to other that visible manifestation of suffering and do so in a way that distance yourself from being proximate to it. So that way you believe that could never be you because you're not that and you're not them. When in reality, what we recognize is that there were so many folks who were one check away, and when that check went away, they were now no longer living in the homes or apartments, but on the sidewalks outside of those homes and apartments. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, I think it plays a role when there's a constituency that has the resources necessary to mobilize and elevate their voice in a manner that gets attention. But I think it's part and parcel of a larger narrative that also extends into the downtown business corridor. Mm -hmm. Um, it also extends into some of the quickly gentrifying areas where people aren't used to living proximate to folks who are navigating different degrees of suffering. I think it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a combination of the whole, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we can't pin that on any single neighborhood, but I think all of us, if we are neighbors to those who are unhoused or those who are in the midst of a mental health crisis, those who are navigating addiction, should center the humanity of those before we begin to determine that we could never be them because those are criminal. So Quinn, for, for Little Saigon, uh, there's a tension on the neighborhood. It's sort of what you were saying, right? Um, but yeah, what is the attitude within the neighborhood about, is the attention the right kind? I guess any public media is decent media <laughs> to mm -hmm. just bring awareness. Um, I mean, public safety has been a long time issue within our community because we've never felt a sense of really real safety. Um, as we all mentioned, a lot of it is just like, is based on relationships with community, within, within community, but also with our um, government agencies and other players. And um, I don't even, I didn't realize it became a bigger issue. I was just, we've always been so focused on our needs in our neighborhood that um, it's interesting to hear from other folks that have only realized that their safety needs aren't met 
uh, well, we're, our safety needs have never been met. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a, real, a good perspective to have. Real quick. Just, yeah, and, and then be, I want to make sure really we hear brief. from Esther yeah. as well. It'll be really brief. I just want to call out the fact that we're not talking about safety. These safety needs are not synonymous with one another. Like the safety needs that are manifesting a little Saigon are, about, are a result of intentional divestment from a portion of the city who's never had the material conditions met to meet the needs of the residents there. That's completely different than the safety needs of like Ballard and Fremont, which are a new manifestation as a result of people who have been there historically that can no longer afford to live in those homes, right? So I just want to make sure for the sake of conversation and definition that those safety needs are dynamically different and are, are a byproduct of two vehemently different like environmental conditions. There. What I just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Esther, anything to add? Yes, definitely. I think, you know, Fremont, Queen Anne, those are neighborhoods that really strongly reflect rapid gentrification and economic inequities, right? And I mean, I, I used to live in San Francisco Bay Area, but we saw that happen there. And so it's happening now there. I, I don't, I'm not as much of a fan of Fremont. I've been there once. You want to know why? But Theo Chocolates, I, I mean, come on. No, I, I collect <laughs> mid-century modern furniture. I do. Okay. <laughs> and first time I went to an antique shop there, I got the retail triangle, mm. right? Folks who know retail, you know when they, they center around you. Mm. And I'll tell you, that shop lost a lot of money, and I haven't been back since. Mm. That's what we're talking about. It's like racial profiling, rapid gentrification. And what I do know from our perspective in the ID and also Little Saigon is that what we, we, what we watched is that they were addressing, quote unquote, safety and they're shifting issues in our direction, right? And it became what less. What do you mean by that, like shifting issues? In your um, well, we, we kind of watched. So um, Sean was just talking about like downtown, right? It's like anywhere but here. So what they do is they begin to force it farther east. And guess where it lands? Little Saigon. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that we're talking about here. It's mm -hmm. really frustrating to watch that happen. So from, from the frustration and the complications, and obviously this goes deep, let's talk about what the solution might be. What are some signs of progress you have seen the last couple years, few years? I mean, go back as far as you'd like. It's been tough. Um, but, but there have been people banding together, and there have been people trying and working and doing, like the three of you. What signs of progress are you seeing for making your communities more safe? Where are the buds? What are you excited about? Um, do you want to start, Esther? Sure. You know, um, I had the privilege of working with um, Chief Diaz this morning, and it's really heavy on my mind. I'm wearing my necklace here around missing and murdered indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And I think a really good example of community and public partnerships is related to missing and murdered indigenous people. We released a report that called out the data gaps in um, missing and murdered indigenous people. And we have established a, a very clear partnership with Se um, Seattle Public um, Police Department. Sorry about that. And uh, so we actually have a position that's analyzing that data. We are working together to establish a clear community response. Um, you know, not any one entity is considered higher than the other, right? And together, we're coming up with defined solutions. And it creates true community accountability. And that, to me, is a great example of what it looks like when people finally see you or hear you, we were talking a lot about visibility in the back, mm. you know, and, and just what that means. Mm. And um, so I know it's possible. Yeah. 
All right, great. Who of you wants to take take it next? I, I can just go. Yeah, um, what are you seeing in, in Little Saigon? Um, I think for at least the, so it's Asian American Pacific Islander Native Hawaiian Heritage Month. Um, so we're celebrating, but also um, really creating more opportunities to advocate and bring um, louder voices to our issues. Um, as many of us know, there was a rise in anti-Asian hate in the past year, um, and that was really challenging to deal with, but it also brought a lot of people out mm -hmm. and together. Um, it has been really hard because uh, although there is a lot more voices coming to the table and um, we're finally, instead of feeling like we have to have one, um, one voice, like everyone has to agree, we're also mm -hmm. recognizing that we have such diverse voices. We don't have to all agree. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the most challenging things that I always get asked is that, what does the Chinatown ID want? <laughs> what is that one ask? <laughs> what is this one thing that, um, one mind that you guys want. And I'm like, I, what? No, <laughs> I'm not gonna give you one answer. Right. Um, and just being to, able to see the growth within our own community and how we advocate and how we are becoming stronger and stronger in our voice and um, also seeing the, the collaboration um, across the different diverse uh, cultures and community has been amazing. Mm -hmm. um, it is a struggle though, because now everyone thinks that they also, their opinion matters. Yeah. So now you have um, to, have to yeah. deal with some of the conflict. But I think um, there's a lot of um, conversations and talking and coming together that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and we are really driving a lot of community solutions rather than really looking only to um, authority or government to find those solutions for us. Sean? Yeah, I was, I was just thinking, like, how, how cool would it be to live in a world where white people thought they were a monolith? Right, and we could point to like one of their representatives and be like, that's all of you, right? All of you feel that way, right? right? 45, I mean like, isn't that like all of you, right? <laughs> but like, isn't that what happens in like marginalized communities? You're like, oh, we gotta change to the other side of the street because we know, I saw that rap video and I know what's gonna happen next. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I struggle with this question, but I have some absolute things to share. You know, we, we began our work um, a little over 10 years ago in partnership with the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office when Dan Satterberg engaged community leader Doug Wheeler and said that we're failing black and brown children, can you help? And at that point they co-created what was called the 180 program, which essentially served as a pre-filing diversion program, which basically means when young people's behaviors criminalized because they live in overly policed neighborhoods, they get access to community instead of a courtroom. And, you know, and, and since we've been doing that work, over 90% of the young people that engage don't return to the criminal legal system within 12 months of participating in the program. And we've been, it's been running strong. Um, but this year, we sunset the program, um, working with young people, because it no longer needs to exist, because the referrals are no longer coming in, because the system has effectively changed and is no longer criminalizing those types of behaviors for young people. Like, when people ask me about impact, that is how we define impact as an organization. The closer we get to no longer needing to exist, because that means the harm that necessitated mm. our existence is gone. Mm. Now, I think that's a really big win, and we celebrate that. Um, and all of you have a lot to do with that. Because not only did law enforcement and prosecution stop criminalizing and adjudicating those cases, the social contract began to change too. Mm. And folks in the community began to recognize that a young person stealing something isn't grounds for them to be caged. And that we should go a different direction. And so there's a, a need for not only um, laws to evolve and practices to evolve, but also the social contract to evolve 
so that all of you that are tapped in on this evening and present here in this space begin to see people as human and not criminal. And then once we see them as human, the innovation comes forward and there's so many things we can create to put them on a healing journey that doesn't exacerbate the harm. So with our last couple minutes, we're gonna hear from Interim Chief uh, Diaz coming up next. What is the right role for police in this question of a safe and sound Seattle? Um, Quinn, do you wanna kick us off on that? Um, I mean, we, the, the system has laid it out so that uh, police should be the ones to be our protectors and help community when we can't deal with certain situations that are violent. Um, they should be working with community. I mean, a lot of the dialogue and everything you're, you're hearing today is that ability to work with community to address safety and be part of community too, and not just like this big authority entity that mm. um, we all either fear or um, uh, just look to as the one solution to our problems. Um, I, I have a challenge dealing with this question because uh, there is the half of our community that, has, that are, just don't want to deal with police and want to break apart the system really start over. Um, but there are community folks who see a very direct role that um, community should not be part of. Uh, I mean, police are trained and they have the tools to do the things that they do. Um, so there is a middle ground where we can come together and work more closely. Um, Esther, what would you say? Yeah, I think that we've asked police to do too much. You know, things that they're not qualified for. Um, around social service, mental health, you know, even physical health, like those types of things are really an issue. I think that um, we need to flip the script on the hierarchy, right? We think about them as the pinnacle. I think that mm -hmm. we should think of them as the last resort, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think, what well, I like what Sean said, like eventually I'd like to see a time when we don't need them as much, mm -hmm. not as busy. We're not having to increase as many. We're not that place yet, right? But I think that we need to really empower and engage community to be part of the solution and um, to, to police ourselves, really. Um, so we have many steps to get there. Thank you. Well, we are at time for this segment. I cannot thank you enough for the depths of insights and observations that you shared with us tonight. So thank you to Sean, uh, Quinn, and Esther. Um, give it up. Comcast strongly supports civic engagement and is proud to sponsor Civic Cocktail. Everyone deserves to participate in the conversation, and Comcast plays an important role in helping people stay connected. For 10 years, Comcast has supported digital equity for all through its Internet Essentials program. To learn more about Comcast's commitment to advancing connections, visit internetessentials.com. Welcome back to Civic Cocktail. In the first segment of our program, we talked with community leaders who helped us get a closer but also broader look at what public safety means in our city. Now we're going to turn to that critical service provider on the other end of a 911 call. 
our police department. For that, I want to welcome to the program Interim Seattle Police Chief Adrian Diaz. Welcome, Chief. Well, first, you were sitting here for the first, the first segment. I was. Um, so I'm curious, they, they defined safety, they talked about the stories of their communities. What stood out to you? What dots connected? What challenged you? Yeah, so when we look at and we talk about public safety, uh, there's one component that believes that it's about protection um, and feeling that lens, a, a sense of safety when they walk outside the door. There's also the level of identifying what safety means, and some people identify safety as, you know, making sure that they have food and housing and services and connections to a variety of different things, and both components of it, because we know that when people feel protected, we also have less trauma that goes on into, into a community. And so when people are victimized, you have, le you have that level of trauma that is continuously affecting a community. And there is no level of that the, the safety that is felt. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's really about, when I start to think about what like, public safety means, really have to think about it as kind of an action statement in the sense of like trying to help people. Mm -hmm. And it's this balance between you know, protecting and also making sure that we also provide and meet people's needs. Well, how does a police department set one strategy for a city <clears throat> with, with different communities, different needs, but also at a time when those differences are really on stage, right? That the, the different people wanna make sure that, hey, don't forget me. Yeah, so when we start to look at kind of an overall strategy, it's really making sure that the department has a vision for making sure that it delivers compassionate and empathetic policing. And that it is, is focused on just trying to help people and, and really it, trying to make it simple. You know, you can put out a good mission statement and a vision statement mm -hmm. that says that we're gonna protect people and prevent crime and you know, intervene in crime and do all sorts of different things. At the end of the day, you want an officer to be compassionate and empathetic. You want them to focus on helping people, meeting people where they're, you know, where they're at because we're dealing with people that are in the most traumatic time, in the worst levels of, of, of experience, whether it's mm -hmm. responding to the rape call or responding to the child that's been neglected to respond to the shooting. And so an officer is trying to figure out how they're gonna end up responding as well as trying to make sure that they create the, uh, an area of safety for the environment that they're, you know, that they're doing that work in. You've been in the department, I just learned, 25 years this year. 25 years. 25 years this September. Morale is low, mm -hmm. criticism is high, and nothing is easy. The department is down a net 332 officers since January 2020. That's about 26% drop. Our last police chief quit. Mm -hmm. So in all seriousness, why are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I think it comes down to I love this city. Um, to your point, it, you know, we, in 2020, we lost 186 officers. Uh, that was probably, you know, one of the most challenging years because it was probably the largest mid-year uh, budget cut that we experienced and trying to navigate that when your, you know, uh, your chief ends up leaving. And, um, and as I'm taking over the reins, we were still experiencing riots and protests. Mm -hmm. But really, it was trying to also hit the reset button and, and say, look, what we've done over the last couple of months isn't working, and we've really got to get back down to the basics. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's, that's what our focus has been doing. Um, 
in 2021, I lost another 171 officers. And I've lost another 60 officers. Now I've hired, you know, over the last couple of years, but it is, it's actually been over 400 officers that I've lost. And now I'm trying to train up another 100 that have, you know, come back or that we've hired in basic law enforcement and some that have returned. So part of that is is really trying to make sure that I instill a level of culture in the department, uh, one that is accountable, one that is also making sure that we rebuild trust with the community, Mm -hmm. that we are still focused on trying to make sure that we provide what kind of level of service we want to provide. And we've already seen really good markers for that. You know, our complaints, our, our Office of Police Accountability complaints are almost down 50%. Um, from just a couple years, just into 2021. Our use of force is down by 48%. And so officers are, you know, it's really trying to make sure that you instill, like, what values you have. Number one, it's, I want to make sure that people build that relationship with the community. Number two, I want to make sure that we are held accountable to the community, that we have to identify those impacts that we made in the community in 2020. Mm that we also are you know, making sure that we put ourselves on the right course for future of policing. And how do we change policing? For over a decade, I probably have told people that have said, we, you can't arrest your way out of these issues. We found ourselves policing a lot of social issues, homelessness, unsheltered population, behavioral crisis, and so many other things that we probably shouldn't, be, shouldn't have done but we were one of the few 24-7 organizations that has the capacity to take on a lot of that work. Mm-hmm. And, and so really for me, it's about getting back to the basics. So a question from, from our audience, should the police have different types of officers respond to different kinds of situations? Give us, give us that vision of mm-hmm. the police department in five to 10 years. So when it comes to dealing with people in behavioral crisis, I would love to see uh, you know, more of the nonprofits you know, that are mental health professionals that are really doing that work. We have five mental health professionals within our department. Um, because we t- as we took on that role, we started to make sure that we created a co-responder model, that we end up also employing uh, mental health professionals to help us better understand what the triggers and hooks were uh, in dealing with someone in crisis. But I would say that there are a lot of that work that we do not need to respond to at all. We don't need to have the police officer. It could be just mental health professionals walking in the community mm. because every community I, I've done walks in, they're saying, hey, we know when Joe is starting to find himself in, in a bad situation, that he's starting to elevate. And if you already had mental health professionals working and talking with them, walking the, that community, we would never have to respond. Mm. It wouldn't be until the situation becomes out of control where now Joe is now potentially armed with a knife and threatening people. Mm. And, and then really, so it, it's that type of work, but also when we start to look at unsheltered, that is really levels of, of work that maybe is assigned for social workers. And, and so do we need to have the officer you know, engage? Right now, a lot of the people that are doing the work in some of these large encampments feel unsafe. And so they've asked the police officers to be present, but I've really tried to make sure that we limit that role so we're not engaging in that level of what's more, more ideal for a social worker role. So part of the tension that came out in the first segment um, is about we're, we're becoming more aware of larger, deeper, systemic types of issues that 
we ought to try to address. But at the same time, there's acute needs in our communities right now, right? Quinn was talking about, I don't, like safety is feeling like I can walk the streets in my neighborhood without being afraid. So how, how, how does one at the same time do both and dedicate the resources to both those things? The, the acute needs that have to happen right now, but also, oh yeah, let's evolve and completely reform and change ourselves. So maybe, maybe you can tell us about the program you're working on too. Yeah, so it's actually about really about public and private partnerships. I mean, we really have to make sure that we include community into these dialogues and discussions and also have their solutions as part of the, uh, the, the actual mm -hmm. process to solving some of these issues. So as I, as I mentioned, we have mental health professionals within that respond with an officer. So there are, there are an avenue for a co-responder model. There's avenues for us that when we are dealing with, say, a shooting, we know that there's going to be trauma on the, on the back end. The officers are going to end up making, when they're going to respond, they're going to make sure the scene is safe. They're putting tourniquets and chest seals and addressing the, the immediate need of trying to save somebody's life. And then they're following up on doing the investigation to make sure that somebody is held accountable for that crime. But we also want to make sure that you know, it's the friends that have been impacted by the violence, it's the family that's been impacted by the violence, that there is a social service that is actually being provided almost simultaneously to address that family's needs. And I think that there's a way to get there. Um, there's a balance between both. And one of the things that we're doing uh, is we call it a before, SPD before the badge. And uh, so I'm bringing officers in 45 days prior to the academy. I'm actually focusing, it really is, I'm, I'm calling it an officer wellness program, really building the resiliency of an officer, but it's focused on social, you know, teaching officers social emotional learning, brain development, trauma-informed practices. It's also developing listening, or it's also having listening sessions with community members that have been impacted by, you know, sometimes it's the black community or native community or uh, the Latino community that have had different impacts by police hearing their perspective, having dialogue, having healthy conversations. So that way, when they're out in the community and somebody says something, they understand why somebody is saying, you know, that I don't trust the police. And, uh, and so by doing that in the very uh, front end of the academy time, it actually helps really instill a level of culture that this is what we value. We really value, and my overall theme of it is called relational policing. It's really about building those relationships in the community. How, how does a police officer react to that? How should a police officer interpret that and, and make it actionable in the ways that you want? Yeah, I don't want an officer to understand it. I want an officer to say, you know, I understand your experience. Maybe it hasn't been positive, mm -hmm. but I want to change that environment. Because at the end of the day, I still have to investigate whatever crime I'm trying to investigate. And so for me, if I'm going to hire 100 officers every year for the next five years, and I instill this level of, of compassion, empathetic policing, that it will change the culture. Because I have a 1,000 officers. So if I put in another 500 officers into this mix over the next five years, it really instills a level of culture change that I'm really seeking. So we talked about Little Saigon, one of you know, what's been identified as, as a hot spot, a place of a lot of acute need. So paint the picture for us. You know, this program's been in place. It succeeds wildly. Mm -hmm. What is happening in Little Saigon? So when we first started doing a, a, the project in Little Saigon earlier this year, is we really wanted to make sure that we addressed the, and targeted the, the violent criminal element that was going on. 
So we ran a lot of surveillance and a lot of undercover operations to really pinpoint who was actually doing, you know, sex trafficking, you know, bringing in guns into the community, selling fentanyl into into the area. And and so then we did warrants. So we did probably about 30 warrants, end up making, you know, arrests at people's homes and hotels and other other locations and recovered a lot of guns, recovered a lot of drugs. And uh, and so really is trying to take that, that violent crime element out of that area. Mm-hmm. And we really didn't want to focus on low-level crime because that's usually a product of what was going on in the environment. So that was really trying to figure out how do you, then how do you try to infuse social services. Mm-hmm. So we made sure that we had a visible presence in that community after we did the big kind of arrests and, and tried to address a lot of the issues that were going on. And then from that, we then started focusing our efforts on being a visible presence, mm-hmm. making people feel safe. So when they walked down the streets, they weren't, you know, accosted or harassed or, you know, threatened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now the CID, we've had, that's the mo- most shootings that we've had in a community than any other parts of the city. Mm-hmm. It's also, <laughs> I mean, think of all the Asian uh, communities that, are, that occupy the CID. I mean, it's the Japanese, it's the Chinese, it's, you know, the Vietnamese. It's, there's just such a huge level of Southeast Asian diversity as well in that area. And so we have to make sure that they're not victimized as, as well. We also have a variety of social services that occupy, that are that in that area. And so that, that's where sometimes people are using those services. So we also don't want them to be victimized. And I think uh, Ms. Lucero had mentioned, like, people felt that when they hired security that they felt that people felt safe because they were being victimized as well. Right, right. And so we want to make sure that that environment is that level safe. In fact, during that time I actually incorporated not only police officers but I incorporated our civilian community service officers to be present as well. So I had a balance between armed and, and civilian presence mm-hmm. to also spend in that time, get to know people build those relationships and build those connections. And it sounds like you're, you're, you're raising an important distinction, I mean, this program is about safety, that there is a kind of sort of red hot safety that yes. is violent crime. And, and you're saying, you gotta take care of that first, yeah. obviously, I yeah. mean, you just got to. But then you said something really interesting about how low level crime is the product of the environment. It's the product of the environment. So it's about getting, you know, tackling the violent crime and then accepting that at some level, the low-level crime is a product of the environment and that more resources than traditional policing have to be put into place, is that? Yeah, and so we, it actually allowed us to actually take less of a footprint in that, in that area. We still had a, a visible presence, but it, it was less officer presence in that area. Now I've moved some of that presence over into Third and Pine. And again, we want to focus on those who were committing <clears throat> violent crime. Mm-hmm. You know, the, what's really changed in the last couple of years is fentanyl and the dynamic of, of our homeless people, our undersheltered population. Yeah, say more about and, that. Yeah. And so we, right about four or five years ago, we recovered probably about, mm, I, I would say, just in the hundreds of fentanyl pills. Well, last year we recovered, you know, hundreds of thousands of pills, enough to kill this whole city. And so you start to think about how fentanyl has really changed the dynamics has made people much more volatile. And so that is that is a whole different dynamic than we've experienced five years ago, 10 years ago. Mm. You know, when you started to think about like methamphetamine and, and other drugs that have, you know, come into a neighborhood, 
fentanyl is completely different. Mm. So and what is the strategy to address it that, that has, has to be new in order to adapt to this? And so right now it's really trying to figure out where, who is bringing, this, uh, bringing fentanyl into the community. And we've, we've identified that a lot of the fentanyl is coming from cartels that are coming in from Mexico. And so we don't have, we're not a close to, we're, we're close to a border city, but you know, Canada, but not Mexico where the drugs are coming through. So we, we have to then take kind of initiatives to try and figure out, okay, when they're in, the, when fentanyl is coming in the city, you know, who is actually distributing it out? How do we identify those people? Are they associated with violent crimes? Last year we'd made, um, I think it was 40 plus arrests, recovered 50 guns. Mm -hmm covered a lot of fentanyl. We ended up having an officer involved shooting as part of the search warrant that we ended up serving. Um, but that made a huge dent in the amount of fentanyl that was coming in. Mm. So I'm, I'm struck listening to you know, the, these programs, these, these investigations of fentanyl, and thinking again about, but the department is short-staffed. It's something like 97% of shifts are in overtime. 99.7. 99.7. So... <laughs> I mean, is it, to what extent is what you're talking about actually kind of on hold until the department becomes resourced and to what, to a level that you might find satisfying or, or sufficient? Um, and to what level is it, no, we're, we're, we're deploying on all these fronts, trust us. Because it's, it's hard to believe when you're that strapped. So what I had to do is I had to move 100 officers back to patrol. So I had to, it impacted our detectives unit. So our follow-up units is drained down. Okay. I took every officer from like our traffic unit, so in our vehicle traffic unit, moved them back to patrol. I took our community policing teams, moved them back to patrol. Our ACT teams, our bicycle units, and everybody else back to patrol. I created a community response group, so I had a little bit of proactivity to work to be done. And so I had to really make some adjustments to how we deployed our services. Um, and that has helped out, it's helped out for some of the projects that we, we've been talking about. But it's still, it, knowing that we've had 99.7% of our shifts being augmented, officers are working two shifts, that's 18 hours a, a day. And so it does put a drain on them. And that's the reason why I've really had to make sure that I spent a lot of money in wellness. So I've brought in psychologists, I've brought in- For you know, the officers. <laughs> for the officers. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, when an officer is tired, that's not gonna have a good outcome in the community. But the officer is coming to work because they wanna make sure they support their fellow officer. Mm. And so, so you wanna make sure that you're putting those investments to take care of people's health. Mm. And, and so I, you know, things that I don't think it's hard to really understand all of the impacts of mm. running a big organization like this, but just trying to make sure that, hey, like I, we gotta invest in our officers. We have gotta make sure that they're healthy. Because we know that when they're healthy, you're going to have a good outcome in the streets. So a question from our audience, going back uh, a bit into a prior discussion. Isn't drug abuse a product of a city with insufficient social services, lack of affordability, and poor citizen morale? Kind of comes down to, you know, what is the police's work and what isn't? Yeah. Um, how would you raise that? It's a great question because I think, you know, we want to make sure that that right now people are getting access to services. And sometimes when people are, you know, have, you know, they're impacted by drugs, some impacted by mental health, they're not taking those services because they, they say, oh, I don't need this. I don't have a problem. And, and so that does become an issue, a, a greater issue for the community because they're usually, that, that is the kind of the high utilizers, what Sean was talking about. 
a person in and out of the criminal justice system, making you know where we make arrests, right. they're not getting the services or treatment that they just needed because right. they don't feel like they need that. And so, how do we still make sure that people aren't being victimized in our community, but as well as making sure that our community is safe, and also people are getting the right services as well, that they're being treated, and that we're doing it with compassion. What sorts of partnerships or solutions are possible today that you would not have seen 20 years ago in Seattle? We've expanded our mental health stuff, you know, having mental health professionals. That is so needed, so desperately needed. Uh, we know that <clears throat> the domestic violence we were starting, we had already started to ramp up like victim support services for, you know, families that are impacted by domestic violence. It is so needed and the capacity is so low. Mm -hmm. When we look at sexual assault, um, we know that, you know, right now, probably about a third is actually, you know, getting referred into some level of services. So we got to make sure that people that are impacted by, by some level of sexual assault get services. Mm -hmm. And so I see, you know, another uh, partnership in with various groups that are doing that type of work. And then also, you know, I kind of mentioned youth violence. We know that you know, youth are being impacted. I think that we will not truly know the impacts of COVID for the next couple of years because, you know, many of the kid, many of youth that have been impacted by COVID, that social skill is gone, mm. and they're having to relearn it. They're having to reacclimate it but as well as they're actually behind in schoolwork. And I think bringing groups in to do, mental, uh, to do mentorship, to do case management, to find people jobs, to help people assist with housing, and all of those are essential to ensuring that it doesn't become a bigger problem in a couple years. Mm. So uh, to close us out, you, you heard the first, um, our first guest tonight talk mm -hmm. about what safety really boils down to for them. Um, you talked about it's it's, it's helping others, it's helping people. But after, after our discussion, you know, what, what really is the heart of that for you? What is the heart of knowing how to do that well? When you run an organization, you really wanna make sure that you're not doing 100 different things, that you're doing just a couple different things, and that's really trying to get back to the basics of policing. And, and when you get back to the basics of policing, you make sure that you do it well, and you do it well with compassion, empathy, and that's what we really want to make sure that our officers are trained in, that we're, that we're focused on just helping people. And so I think that right now we found ourselves in policing being everybody's, uh, you know, the ability to save everything. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that because we just don't have the resources. We don't have the services, and it's not our specialty. Let those that have those specialties be able to do that line of work. Now, we will assist in that work, but I think that there's other entities that can do that work better than us. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, thank you so much, Chief Diaz, for joining us tonight. It's here for our chief. Thank you to everyone uh, who joined us here in our live audience at Town Hall Seattle, and many thanks to all of you at home joining in as well. Civic Cocktail returns on June 22nd, when we will focus on the impending Supreme Court reversal of Roe v. Wade and the impacts here in our state. Lots to cover, as you can imagine. You can find out more at crosscut.com events. Thank you, everyone, and have a great night.
This episode of the Civic Cocktail Podcast was produced by Mark Bumgarten. The live event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. There's also a video version of Civic Cocktail. The monthly event is streamed live, broadcast on KCTS 9, and available on demand at kcts9.org and through most streaming platforms. The live stream and broadcast recording of Civic Cocktail was produced by Stephen Hegg, and the executive producer is Sarah Menzies. The executive producer of Crosscut Podcasts is Mark Baumgarten, and the executive editor of Crosscut is M. David Lee III. If you'd like to attend the next taping of Civic Cocktail or any of Crosscut's other events, go to crosscut.com events. You can subscribe to the Civic Cocktail podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we put on every month or the journalism we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming from KCTS 9, Seattle's PBS station. For more on Civic Cocktail and other Crosscut podcasts, go to crosscut.com podcasts. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Civic Cocktail is a product of Cascade Public Media and Seattle City Club. We'll be back next month with another conversation.